So let's open this morning with a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you now in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, understanding that's the only access that we have to you is through the Son. And Lord, we give you praise this morning for you deserve all praise. You deserve to be magnified and uplifted and glorified. Lord, we desire to speak the truth about who you are as a great creator, as the sovereign over all that you created, as the holy, righteous one, always doing what is good, always being perfect in all that you do, all that you think. Lord, uh, we're so grateful this morning that you have given to those who believe in Jesus Christ the understanding of who he is, the very faith that we need to trust him as our savior. Lord, these are great and magnificent promises from you. And so we delight in that this morning. We thank you for the privilege we have to come together as the body of Christ, to fellowship with one another, to corporately give you praise and worship. Father, to come together that we may be known by the love that we have for one another. Father, thank you so much for the scriptures and the privilege we have to open them week by week, to openly discuss them, to speak in freedom. Lord, we don't take these things for light, for there are so many who don't have the privileges that we have today. And so we thank you for these things. We desire to give you praise and worship in all that we do in this place this morning. May it be pleasing in your sight. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. This is week number 47 in our discussion of the book of Daniel. And so last time we finally came to finish the end of chapter 9 and verse 25 after spending three or four weeks in that verse and this is a part of the larger decree so sometimes it's good for us to take a step back and understand that Gabriel gave the message that God gave to him to speak about the decreed will of God beginning back in verse 24 and it goes 24 through 27 this passage, uh, most known by the name, the 70 weeks of Daniel. And there's a lot in here, as we've seen, just walking through verse 24, um, three or four weeks there, then verse 25, three or four weeks there, and in verse 26, which we'll begin this morning, I dare say we'll be here for several weeks also. Uh, on first blush, it doesn't seem like that should be the case, but as we get into it, you'll see that there are some things that we have to uncover uh, to understand what Gabriel spoke to Daniel. And you'll remember that in this decreed will of God given in these verses, so far we've seen in verse 24, six accomplishments that God himself would do during the 70 weeks, and then we, in verse 25, we saw some things that would be true for the Jews specifically. And this whole decreed will, 
everything that Gabriel is speaking here, he qualified it at the beginning to say this speaks of, Ga of Daniel and Daniel's people. So it's not for everybody on the planet. This is the decreed will of God for the Jews. Now, it certainly includes other people um, in order to accomplish everything that's here, but nevertheless, this is the decreed will of God for the Jews. And we talked about um, verse 25 gets into those terms, the Messiah and the anointed one. And we looked at the scripture to see those are very limited terms in the scriptures. Very difficult to build an argument from the Old Testament into the New Testament that Jesus Christ was the anointed one. That would be difficult to do linguistically using these verses. But nevertheless, we saw last week in John 4 and 26 that when the woman at the well said that we know the Messiah is coming, the Christ, meaning the anointed one, then Jesus turned to her and said, uh, if you had understanding, you would know it is he who speaks to you. So Jesus declared himself to be the anointed one, what we would call the Messiah today. Um, but those, are limp, those terms are not simply found in scripture. They're just not there um, very often. And so um, you ought to think about that when we start talking about the Messiah because people throw that around today um, just willy-nilly, but it's not really a biblical term that's used very often. Um, very rarely, in fact. So, but Jesus Christ is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And the New Testament affirms that over and over and over again by simply calling him Jesus Christ. So Jesus, the anointed one, as opposed to Jesus, the son of Joseph. So, which is what the people of his day would have called him. But not those who had understanding of who he was. So what I want to do this morning is begin in verse 25 and just kind of read through the end of the 70 weeks of Daniel, just three verses here, so that we can gain context of what we see in verse 26. So beginning in verse 25 of Daniel 9, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And as in will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, I think often when we, when we think about the 70 weeks of Daniel, we think about revelation, we think about wars, we think about tribulation, we think about all those things that are contained in the 70 weeks. No, no doubt about that. But when you get 
to where Daniel was listening in verse 25. Everything in verses 24 and 25 are wonderful. I mean, think about it. The six accomplishments of God in verse 24 are all good, wonderful things. I mean, and, and some of them were accomplished in Jesus Christ's first advent. Some of them won't happen until the second advent. But to put an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to sprinkle uh, the holy place with his blood, those things were all accomplished when Jesus first came. And, and we can see that. Daniel could not see that. But those would all be good things, even from Daniel's perspective, to seal up or to bring to a conclusion all prophecy. Daniel would long for that to be true because he's the one who's seen all these visions that are yet to take place in future history. So all of these things in verse 6 or 26, 24, the six things in verse 24 are all good and productive things, things that Daniel would have delighted in. Then you get to verse 25, and he gets that not only is there going to be a decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem and the sanctuary, but it will happen. This is the decreed will of God, and he says it will happen, meaning, okay, this is actually going to happen. And then Daniel, in his life, probably knew at least about the first decree of Cyrus. I mean, it's in the first year of Cyrus, so it's very early after the Babylonian <clears throat> fall and the Persians come in. And so Daniel is right, doesn't write this book until after that time. So he probably even knew about the first decree. I don't know if he lived long enough to hear the second decree which didn't come for another 18 years, probably not, but he knew about at least the first decree. So he sees all these wonderful things beginning to take place. And then he sees, I mean, Gabriel tells him straightforwardly, after the 69th week, then the Messiah will come, the anointed one will come. So Daniel sees nothing but grand things up to this point in the prophecy. I mean, the six accomplishments of God, the city of Jerusalem, and the sanctuary rebuilt, restored, the Messiah coming to reign in Daniel's mind over that new Jerusalem, that new sanctuary, to preside and usher in the kingdom of God. And so when you get to all of a sudden in verse 26, this must come as quite a shock to Daniel, because everything is good. Everything that, that Gabriel has spoken to him up until this point are wonderful. It's what, you remember we talked about it, when Daniel was praying, he referred all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, which said after the destruction, after everything had been done, if they would seek God's face, that he would restore. That's what's in Daniel's mind. I mean, that's what God promised all the way back in the books that Moses wrote. And so Daniel has been praying. Here comes Gabriel to answer his prayer. It all fits into his understanding of Scripture. It all meshes together. This is going to be wonderful. And then verse 26. 
where all of a sudden Gabriel says, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. And that term cut off um, is pretty common in scripture. I think it's used something like 290 times in the Old Testament. It could be referred to, say, cut uh, a part of your body off, uh, specifically the head when they beheaded people, or it could be spoken of to chop a tree down. Um, would, this is the same word that would be used for that. Um, uh, any, any part of the body, like circumcision, would be referred to by this same word because it's cutting part of the flesh off. So this is a common word, but this should not happen to the Messiah, right? I mean, the Messiah should not be chopped down. He should not have his head cut off. He should not be dis, dis um, um, whatever you call it, when you cut arms and legs off. Um, so this, yes, this should not happen to the Messiah. This is not Daniel's concept of what would happen to the Messiah, unless by some chance Daniel understood the vague references in Scripture that Jesus Christ would come twice. I mean, it's, it's there, but it's very, very vague in the Old Testament. And so Daniel probably did not have that understanding. He had the understanding of what he knew from Deuteronomy and what he's been praying and what Gabriel has spoken to this point. All makes sense, but this doesn't make sense. This, is, this has got to be shocking to Daniel. The, the Messiah would be cut off. How, how could such a thing be? Because, you know, Daniel probably had the writings of Ezekiel. Ezekiel started after Daniel and finished before Daniel was finished. So he's kind of in the middle of when Daniel lives according to this book. And so he probably had, he, he certainly had the completed work of Jeremiah that Jeremiah wrote. And if he had Jeremiah, he probably also had Ezekiel. And this doesn't fit to what Ezekiel wrote because Ezekiel talks about the restoration of, of Jerusalem, about the great temple that we walk through, about worship and uh, the people living in the land securely and all these wonderful things that are gonna happen. And this doesn't fit that the Messiah would be cut off. How, how could that be with all these other prophecies of what's going to happen when the Messiah comes? It just doesn't make any sense. So this had to be somewhat confusing to Daniel, but that does not negate the understanding or the literal words of Gabriel when he said, these, this decree, this message is being given to you so that you may gain knowledge and discernment. Doesn't negate that. Daniel probably was confused, probably didn't understand, but it still doesn't negate the truth of what Gabriel spoke because that's why God gave this, was to give understanding, to give discernment, to give knowledge about what was going to happen in the future in the decreed will of God. So we stand today and we have the, the great privilege of being able to look back 
on the first advent of our Savior. I mean, this makes perfect sense to us, right? We know that these things, these six accomplishments that are given in verse 24 could not be accomplished without the Messiah coming and being sacrificed. No way. These things couldn't take place. How could he possibly sprinkle the Holy of Holies with his blood if he didn't die? He couldn't. And so we understand that, and we can look back and we can see. And so we have a, 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 a very distinct privilege that Daniel did not have. We, this does not confuse us. This makes perfect sense to us because we know that Jesus Christ, when he was here, he said, if I go, I will come again. Daniel didn't have that truth. Daniel didn't know that. And so we have a very, very privileged position. We know that the anointed one had to be cut off. Jesus Christ explained that well in his doctrine. Uh, John the Baptist called him, behold the Lamb of God. So this was well understood of why Jesus had to come once he came and revealed it. Once Paul, you know, he says, I took the lid off of it so that you might have understanding because Daniel didn't have that. He didn't have the privilege that we have. And so we need to understand that when Daniel was listening to this, confusion, not quite fitting into his preconceived notions of what he thought would happen. And that same confusion continues till today. Because I'll tell you, this verse 26 is one of the most controversial verses in all of eschatology. And there are very, very differing views. And we'll talk some about that at the end today as we, this is why it's going to take us several weeks to go through this, because you have to uncover some of history. You have to look at what actually happened when these events took place. You know, here Daniel is. I mean, not only does Gabriel say that the Messiah will be cut off, he also says that the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. Now, from Daniel's perspective, 50 years prior, 40 to 50, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem. And now here's Gabriel saying it's going to be restored. Here's Cyrus proclaiming um, God has called me to build him a house. So I want the Jews to go back and do that. And then here's Gabriel saying, and that temple that they're getting ready to go back, that city they're going to go back and restore and rebuild, it's going to be destroyed again. <laughs> you guys got to be, he's got to be shaking his head, right? It's not even built yet, and here's Gabriel already talking about it being destroyed again. Now, that doesn't happen for another close to 500 years, not until 70 AD, and here is Daniel writing in the mid-5th century BC, so it's 500 years before it happens, but it does happen. 
I mean, you remember that Jesus Christ even said that, right? Standing outside of the temple in the week of Advent, they had been in the temple. They come out and the um, disciples are marveling at the temple uh, that was still being rebuilt, by the way. Herod started the rebuilding, the beautification, the doubling in size of the temple, but Herod died. But those two who came after him continued that work, and it actually didn't finish. This is a, kind of astounding. It didn't finish that work to rebuild and expand the temple. 64 A.D., and then in 70 A.D., they tear it all down. So it only existed for six years in that final glorious state. So Daniel doesn't have any of that understanding. We do. But Daniel didn't understand that. But he had to be shocked. I mean, how can the Messiah be cut off? How can Jerusalem be destroyed again? Later, how could Jesus Christ say, not a stone will be left upon another stone? As they stood there. I mean, that had to shock the disciples. I mean, this project was still ongoing for most of their life. Well, for some of them, their whole life, this rebuilding of the temple was ongoing. And yet, here's Jesus Christ saying it's going to be destroyed in unification with Daniel, Gabriel speaking to Daniel, who says it's going to be destroyed. I mean, it's just startling to these guys. They, they had to be confused. Now, again, we understand it. We have the great privilege of living 2,000 years after all this happened and looking back so we can fit the pieces together. They could not. And this, I believe, was written every bit as much for the church today as it was, written, as it was given to Daniel so that we might gain understanding. So these things are shocking to those whom they were spoken to. They are overwhelming. They're, they're, they don't make sense. They're confusing. They, there's no way they could have understood all that we can understand today. Just, there's no possibility because they didn't have um, the history that we have. And you always will hear me say this. History is important. But what the historians say never trumps what Scripture says. What the archaeologists find never trumps what Scripture says. Scripture is preeminent, and then the more we understand, the more we realize that Scripture is preeminent and is right in all points. So when I refer to history, and I will a lot in this verse, always maintain the understanding that Scripture trumps whatever we see in history. But you'll see as we go through this that history reveals a lot about what is given in verse 26 and 27. Go ahead. Right. Right, no, the Wailing Wall is actually part of the wall around the city, so not part of the temple. Um, so, you know, the temple was destroyed, but not the whole city. I mean, there's still some portions of the wall that are still there. 
There's other things that are still there that archaeologists continue to find. And we could go through a list of those, things that they found even in the 20th century, now into the 21st century, that they continue to find that verify the, um, the passages that speak of Jesus moving about in Jerusalem, the, you know, where the pool of Bethesda was, these other things, that those are continuing to be discovered today and uncovered. And you can go read about them as well as I can. I mean, they're not hidden by any means. I told you about the moat that was found that the Muslims built on the north and west side of Jerusalem. Um, it's actually paved on the bottom. They didn't find that until the last 15 years, but it's there. And so we continue to find things that verify what scripture speaks. So always, always have that perspective that doesn't really matter what the historians and the archeologists say that um, denounces the scripture, they're simply wrong. And the scriptures are always right. So, but it does make sense to try and put the two together because it gives you greater understanding. As we saw, I believe, with Antiochus Epiphanes in chapter 8, that there was a short-term fulfillment by that leader of what is spoken of in chapter 8. Others go to the end times, makes no sense to me, because we're clearly told that the goat is Greece. And so it doesn't make sense to run to the end times exclusively with that prophecy because Antiochus came out of the Grecian Empire. Nevertheless, I, I digress. So our understanding of what was spoken to Daniel up until this point is pretty clear, right? We know the city was rebuilt. We know the sanctuary was rebuilt. We can look at the six accomplishments and see what was accomplished in Jesus' first advent and what won't be accomplished to his second advent. Those things are pretty clear. We can understand that there were to be seven weeks and then 62 weeks, and so 69 weeks, and at the end of the 62nd week, the Messiah would show up. That's Jesus Christ coming on the scene. We, we know all those things, and we can put them together like we have and have pretty good understanding of that. Right? I mean, it doesn't seem to be so confusing that we can't walk through the details and put them together. Now, as you get into verses 26 and 27, that may change. You, you see, first of all, that the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing which cannot be misunderstood. The Messiah is going to be chopped down and he'll have nothing. I mean, that's pretty plain, that he's not going to be a great ruler, he's not going to be some great king, at least in this part of prophecy of scripture. And so that's clear. And then you get to this statement, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. All right, the destruction we understand, right? I mean, we know what that means. 
that this temple that Zerubbabel built, that Herod began to expand, that other Greek, uh, other Roman leaders would expand even more, will ultimately be destroyed, as Jesus Christ said it would in his prophecy. So that's pretty easy to understand. But this statement, the people of the prince who is to come, who is that? This is the grand question. Who are we talking about when we talk about the people and the prince? So this prince, I mean, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is named here as a prince, right? Just in the beginning part of the verse uh, where it says, sorry, in the previous verse where it says, rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, will come. So Jesus Christ is called a prince, and now we have this other person who is called a prince. So he's a leader. That's all that term simply means. Now with Jesus Christ, um, the translators always capitalize the P, right, typically. I think ESV actually doesn't capitalize it and says not the anointed one, but an anointed one, which is the right translation. Um, so, but the translators are trying to help you by capitalizing things, and they really should not do that, right? Because all of the Old Testament was capitalized. There were no little letters. It's all written in caps. So <laughs> they're just trying to help you. They're giving you their interpretation. So, but I do believe this prince should be a little p, and the people are not the Jews because this whole prophecy is about the Jews, right? And so the prince of the people who are to, the prince to come, the people of the prince to come can't be the Jews because they're already there. This prophecy is about them. So there has to be another group of people that we're talking about when we talk about um, the people of the prince who is to come has to be someone other than the Jews. And so the question is raised, well, who could that be? And you know this about Canton Bible Church, that we're pre-millennial, right? We believe that Jesus Christ will come pre the millennial reign, pre the literal thousand year reign. This is simply the way that we understand scripture. So we're pre-millennial. Um, you could get into a lot of other discussion, we won't do this this morning, about uh, are we pre-tribulation? Meaning, does Jesus Christ come to call the church home before the tribulation? Or are we mid-tribulation? Meaning, at the end of the middle of the tribulation, that Jesus Christ comes to call the church home? Or are we post-tribulational? meaning that Jesus Christ comes at the end of the tribulation about the same time that he ushers in the millennial kingdom. That one doesn't make any sense to me because why would he call us home to bring us back immediately? So, but nevertheless, we are pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. That's the way we see scripture. That Jesus Christ will come and rapture the church before the tribulation 
and then bring us back with him at the end of the tribulation when he comes to establish the millennial reign. And in that rapture, Paul says that the mortal will put on immortality, be changed in the twinkling of an eye. That's when I believe that we will, um, this body that we live in now that will decay, those who are alive when Jesus Christ comes will be changed on their way up. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ and been buried since Jesus Christ was buried will be brought up out of the graves to meet him in the air and actually will precede those who are alive and be glorified in a new body and be with God in heaven for seven years while the tribulation goes on in glorified bodies waiting to come back. So that's the way that we dissect the tribulation period and the millennial period and what we see in scripture and the way we understand it. So you need to I say that just so you know where we're coming from when we begin to talk about the prince of the people, the, prince, the people of the prince who is to come. Because the vast majority, I would say almost all, who are pre-millennial, certainly since the Reformation, believe that this verse, 26, speaks of a revived Roman Empire that will exist and reign during the tribulation time. And the reason they get there is because, notice what it says. It says, the prince of the people who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and it will come like a flood. Now, this has to be talking about the sanctuary and the city that Zerubbabel rebuilt, that Antiochus invaded and decimated, that the Jews restored again, that the Hasmoneans lived over, uh, reigned over for about 100 years, that the Romans then came in, and at the time of Jesus Christ ruled over it, and in 70 AD destroyed under the auspices of the Roman government. Right? We know that. That's historical. That's indisputable. So they say, well, if the Romans destroyed it, then this verse speaks about a prince who is to come of the people of the Romans. That's been the interpretation for a long time. That's where the vast majority of premillennialists wind up. not where I wind up, okay? I disagree with that interpretation, and I have reasons. And it'll take me weeks to explain those reasons. So we'll walk through all of that, if the Lord wills, in coming weeks. But I do not believe, I couldn't be any more emphatic, I do not believe the prince who is to come has anything to do with the Roman Empire at all. And that Rome, meaning the European Rome, or, you know, and, and honestly, th those who espouse this use 
the first 500 years of the Roman Empire and ignore the last 1,000 years of the Roman Empire, which was based in Constantinople. They only talk about Rome, and they ignore the larger influence that the Roman Empire had for more than a 1,000 years in Constantinople. I'm okay with that because I think they're wrong anyway. So <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, and I, I don't argue about these things. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to dispute or fight with anybody about these things. What I will do is I will uncover evidence that you'll have to deal with, that you'll have to come to conclusions on. Am I right or am I wrong? But there's a lot of evidence that I will lay on the table for you that I think shows that this prince is not Roman in his origin. So who is he? Well, I think the 21st century, the 20th century began to reveal it. The 21st century is revealing it in spades. And it, it from my perspective, continues to accelerate. But I'll give you all of that in weeks to come. I mean, without what we know in the last 100 years, I can understand why the interpretation was that it was a revived Roman Empire. And believe me, when the EU got together, there was all kinds of hoopla about the Roman Empire being revived. But now we've got, what, 22 countries, uh, two more vying to be in the EU, to 24 countries, and that doesn't fit their model. And they're not all just European. Some are Slavic. Some, Turkey is part of the EU, and that's clearly, that's Asian. And so their model doesn't seem to be working. Um, but the, believe me, at the beginning of the EU, in, um, in the late 1990s, early 2000, here it comes, right? I just have a feeling. I can't tell you how many preachers I heard say, I just have a feeling. Well, they were wrong. <laughs> their feelings were wrong. You've got to base it in facts. You have to be cerebral about this. You have to think. You have to look at the evidence. You have to be critical. That doesn't mean critical of people or what. That just means you look at the details. You look at the facts. You look at what scripture reveals. And you look at what history shows us. And that's what we're going to do. Um, so I'll use some extra biblical references, sort of like I did uh, with Antiochus, and we brought in the Apocrypha and looked at First and Second Maccabees. Nothing wrong with that. Those aren't scripture. They don't trump scripture, but they give us a lot of information. They did then. They still do today. And the things that I'll bring in, um, mainly 20th and 21st century thoughts, um, will be some of the evidence that I present. Go ahead. Do I believe this prince is from the Middle East? I, I'll just give you this as an answer. That Ezekiel says that Jerusalem is the navel of the earth. Now what does that tell you? That everything 
this prophecy, everything in history has revolved around the Middle East. Always has, still does today. And so I won't tell you who I think he is because I don't know, <laughs> but I have an idea. So we'll talk more about this as we go. What I want to do is put the evidence on the table so that you can decide for yourself. And because you may have been raised in the church and you were told all your life that this is a revived Roman Empire. And I'm going to contradict that. And I think I have the evidence to do that. So that's where we're going to be for the next several weeks, if the Lord wills. Um, it will take us some time to walk through this. Um, and I'll use um, some ancient references also. I'll use Josephus um, a pretty good bit um, because Josephus writes about the destruction of the temple. There aren't many who did uh, write about it. There's also, um, Josephus was a Jew. There's also Tacitus who wrote from the emperor, the Roman emperor's perspective. He wrote his history, the Chronicles, for the Roman emperor. So his view is different than Josephus. So the truth is probably somewhere in the middle between the two, because they both had their biases, as we talked about. Historians always have a bias. They can't help it. They were raised in certain countries, have certain views, have certain presuppositions. And so you can't help but have some bias. So to read both of them is probably wise. So we will. We'll look at some quotes from both of those guys as we go through this. Um, so that's where we're headed. Daniel would have been very confused, would not have made sense to him. We have the privilege of looking back over 2,000 years of history, actually 2,500, to see more than Daniel could see. So we'll try and do that. Thanks for your time.